You have to remember, originally, this was not divided in chapters, right? So we go straight from Jericho defeated to this verse, chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. We don't know what the things are. The writer and his creativity is holding that off for later. But this sets the tone for what happens next. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that, would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, 
son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. O Lord, we we tremble. We're shocked as we face the holiness and judgment of God Himself in this passage. And Lord, we we know that you are the same God then, now as you were then. You are the same always. We deal with a God who must take vengeance upon sin. Lord, we thank you that we have an everlasting hope in Jesus Christ who bore away your vengeance for sin, your wrath upon sin for the sake of all those who trust in him. And Lord, even as we come to this fearsome fierce text, we would come all the more resting in Jesus and Jesus alone, who alone delivers us from the wrath that is to come upon this whole world. Oh, bless us, Lord. Help us see Jesus all the more. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Probably most of you, like me, read the book uh, by Jonathan, or the, the sermon by Jonathan Edwards in your study of English literature, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, Ralph Davis, who was one of my professors uh, at seminary, maybe my favorite, favorite professor. He was so uh, engaging and uh, lively uh, and penetrating in his lectures. His commentary on Joshua for this chapter is entitled, the church 
in the hands of an angry God. And he didn't just say Israel. He said the church. This was the church of that day. We are the church. We are his people as well. It's easy for us to perhaps either take this one of two ways, for this to strike the kind of fear in our hearts so that we don't have assurance that God is ours and, and Jesus has delivered us. Or on the other hand, to go the other direction and say, let's just dismiss that. That's, that's Old Testament. Jesus has come and we don't have to think about that anymore. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, though, in speaking about Christ, the very second chapter after he introduces Christ in the first chapter and dis- displays his glory, he says, if in the Old Testament... There were judgments. He doesn't mention this particular, but he refers to the judgments of the Old Testament, of which this is one. He said, if there are those judgments for those things in the Old Testament, he doesn't say, we don't have to worry about it anymore. He says, how much more if we neglect the salvation that is in Christ? So he would argue from this, the lesser to the greater that the issue of believing in Christ has more weight than ever. It can hardly be compared. And so, toward the end of Hebrews, as he is calling us to faith in Christ alone and not to be turned from that faith, not to be turned from the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, He says, as one of the reasons, because our God is a consuming fire. Not was, in Joshua's day, he is a consuming fire. So covenant faithfulness is real now as as it was then. Covenant faithfulness, though, centers for us in faithfulness to Jesus, faithfulness to helplessly trust in him alone for our salvation, to continue to hope in him, to continue to seek him, to continue to uh, develop awe and gratitude for him and praise of him, seeking him in everything we do. So our faithfulness is centered on Christ, but faithfulness there must be. And it's not, as we'll get into it more, not just sheer obedience, but it is trust that issues in obedience. So I just wanted to begin this study by helping us underscore that this is still such a press. It's all the more a pressing issue for us. But you see in your outline the three points. These are basically just the uh, sections of Scripture. So the first nine verses I've titled as Sin and Consequence. The sin is stated in the very first line of verse 1, where he uses this phrase, he broke faith regarding the devoted things. This this term, break faith, 
is used earlier in the Bible to speak of sinning against your neighbor, but it says, and therefore breaking faith with God. So scripture views every sin, our sin against one another, as breaking faith, or another phrase or way to translate, acting treacherously against God. It's also used of a spouse who is unfaithful to his or her mate. So it is covenantal language. It is marriage language. Covenant and marriage are, are blended in, in Scripture. Marriage is viewed as a covenant. The covenant is viewed as a kind of marriage with God. And so to turn away from God, to turn away from the covenant, is to break faith, to act treacherously against the one with whom we are married. And so, especially is idolatry regarded as breaking faith. And again and again, when idolatry is being judged or spoken of, this very phrase is used. That by acting or participating in idolatry, Israel breaks faith with God. And finally, this, this continues until in the very end, Israel abandons the covenant or continues to abandon the covenant so consistently over years that they are cast into exile. And here's a typical of many statements about that. It says in Daniel 9, 7, as it's looking back of the, upon the exile, Daniel speaking already in exile says that they were exiled because of the treachery that they've committed against you. Same phrase as here in Achan, with Achan. So you see, Achan's sin, sadly, is a precursor, a preview of Israel's final sin against God and their exile. This is the sad part of this. You would hope that this is a blip on the radar screen, right? Oh, we steered there, but we never returned there. But this, sadly, is a prediction in a way. We couldn't know it at this point, but of the whole future of Israel. And we'll get more into this next week as we uh, contrast Achan and Rachel, uh, Rachel Rahab. I used her name, Rachel. I kidded with Kay and said, I'm going to tell him that in the Hebrew, it's Rachel Rahab. And I was just using her first name instead of her last name. Of course, that's not true. Um, but uh, the, Achan and, and, and Rahab form a contrast in uh, Joshua that points ultimately to the Jews and the Gentiles. But more of that later. So what's the result of this sin against uh, God? And we, we see it as it's expressed in verses 10 and following. What happens to them, the consequence of this sin. Uh, Achan has made himself and made all of Israel devoted to destruction. This ban, this harem, this uh, Hebrew word 
can be a positive word of someone devoting a, a sacrifice to God or devoting a portion of their possessions to God. In this case, it's an act of judgment that these things are devoted to absolute destruction. And so by destroying them, you give them to the Lord. He owns them. They're not yours. They're devoted to God. People and possessions, as, as it has to do as to uh, Jericho. So all of this is devoted to God. They're his possessions to do with whatever he wants. And so by taking some of those devoted things, Achan now and Israel must be treated as devoted to destruction. See? Israel has become what it stole. They now are destined for destruction. In a sense, they've crossed over and become Canaanites, or they have a Canaanite in their midst, and if they don't uh, discover and destroy these devoted things, they will be destroyed as devoted things. That's the seriousness of, of this judgment. So instead of being the people of God, now they become the enemy of God because of this idolatry, because of this covetousness. And so as before, he said, no one can resist you. Now you can't stand against your enemies. You see, that's language that was being used of the Canaanites. You did have God's promise, but now you've put yourself in the position of those very ones that God is judging. You've gone from being instruments of judgment in God's hands to the very subject of judgment. And when it talks about their hearts being melted, that's the very language that he was describing of the Canaanites. You see, now you are under destruction. Your hearts are melted. You will be defeated because you have abandoned me, at least in this one act. And so this uh, is a bold act of, of uh, usurpation of, of taking that which is is God. One said it's like robbing the offering plate itself. And it was interesting several years ago when Rob Hamby, who was a RUF minister, had left his bag in my office to preach that Sunday. Uh, some of you remember this. And he, I, I, I always locked my office the one day I didn't lock my office, okay? These people who were going to nursing homes and other places to steal came into our church, got into the office and took his bag and took his computer, took his wallet, and they were spending money as he was preaching. That went all over the United States. You think, how many things, how many people's stuff was stolen that weekend or this week. Why that? You know why it was? It's like a pastor's stuff was stolen while he was preaching. You know, that, that really got to everybody. Well, this is all the more, you see. It's that kind of thing. 
you went in and took God's stuff for yourself? That is to say, I am more important than God. That is to point everything toward me and what I want, not what God has said. Before we leave this, I I must at least talk a little bit about this amazing prayer. It shows in what Joshua says here that you can complain to God, just don't like Israel complain about God. But the phrase I want to underscore a bit is this last phrase in verse 9. What will you do for your great name? That's an amazing, amazing statement and a gripping thing. The thing that really consumes Joshua, the thing that he can't see at this point, the thing he's wondering about, what are you going to do for your great name if we are wiped out? The great name of the God who delivered Israel out of Egypt, who brought us through the wilderness, who brought us through the Red Sea and now over the Jordan. What will you do for your great name? And I just wanted to leave that with you at this critical place where they were in this dangerous place of of being destroyed. And this prayer, what a great prayer for us for every circumstance, keeping us focused always on the issue, always before us. What will God do for his great name? You know, this is actually a way to underscore the way the, uh, how the Lord's prayer is structured. It begins with this prayer, hallowed be thy name. That's the first request. And in a way, that's Every other request is a part of that. Hallow your name by your kingdom. Hallow your name by our doing your will. Hallow your name by meeting our needs. Hallow your name by keeping us from temptation, by forgiving us. It's really a part of all of our prayers. Lord, do act for your great name. Always act for your great name. We can plead our danger. We can plead our anguish. But let's always plead his honor. And think of how much force this can give our prayers for the extension of the ministry and gospel from this church to say, Lord, what will you do for your great name in Fort Worth? I even like... Uh, That's even helped me to ask it like that. Not just, I mean, yes, Lord, act for your great name. To even ask him, what will you do for your great name? Or you're praying for the unity of our church, the fellowship, the development of gifts or development of mercy or any aspect of the development of our worship. Oh, Lord, act for your great name. What will you do for your great name among us, Lord? What a lively prayer. And in the face of especially the breakdown of society, I just, one thing I detest is the wringing of hands politically or socially. Oh, what are we going to do? Look what another thing's happened and another thing's happened and another thing's happened. 
I, I read, you probably, some of you too, of the recent decision in Austin. And it says this, if this is true, this is what it says, that children can't refer in school to their own mother and father because that would offend other children that are not binary. Okay. Now, I grieve that. It horrifies me. It unhinges me. But I also want to pray in this circumstance in which we face and hundreds and thousands of others where things seem to be breaking down. Here's your prayer. What will you do for your great name in the midst of this? As it has happened, and no matter what happens, what will you do for your great name? And do you think that God for one second will ever abandon the pursuit of his great name in the earth? No, he will not. Now, it may not, be, it may not happen like we think it should or wish it would, or we may go through things that we never dreamed we would go through. But we can say, what will you do for your great name? Well, the sin, the the discovery and confession comes next as they narrow down and they discover that it's Achan. And there's this striking phrase where he says, glorify God, give praise to God to confess your sin. Because uh, praise... Part of praise is the truthful confession of sin to God. It's a praise and honor to him. It's not to be inauthentic to God, to be hiding a life uh, that we're not bringing before God, to bring praises in his presence here with the people of God, but we are not committed to him. We have a whole life devoted to something else to declare his greatness publicly, but privately regard him as not so great, as nothing or no one of consequence, no honor, no submission to his word, no concern for his will at all, but I'll come and give the lip service. You see, that's not praise, right? But an authenticity, an openness to God Hiding our sin is a way to assert ourselves instead of God and his rights and his authority. And Achan talks about the progress of this as he saw it and desired it. This is the same term used uh, when Eve is talking about desiring the tree for wisdom in Genesis uh, chapter 3. It's the same word used in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, right? So this covetous, this desire to for that which we have no right to possess. And it reveals in this that he would not, could not trust God and trust his life in God's hands. Really sad tragedy about this is that In every other instance of their taking a city, this particular ban against taking the goods of the city did not apply. (laughs) In other words, the tragedy is if you trusted God, 
God would take care even of that. And there would have been spoil. But he took what was devoted to God. And we have to guard against thinking God is untrustworthy because he does not give us what we want or what we think we need. Uh, And sometimes worst of all, he really does not explain himself. This doesn't make sense. And I can't figure out that's true. That's true. But by Jesus, through Jesus, through what he's done for me in Christ Jesus, we must continue to be open to God working in our hearts so that we can trust the one who gave his son for us. That he is Truly a gracious and good God. He has the greatest plan for each of our lives to do us the greatest good in conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. But if you're like me, it is hard, hard to swallow at times. And I cannot see it for me and for others at times. And I even think God should be accountable to me, you know, (laughs) answerable to me, to what I would like in this. So covetousness here to desire that which is not ours, to take it and to and not to trust God in what he has done for us. This second hymn that we sang has a great line that is so important here where he says, you are my inheritance. And that's really the issue for our lives in in coveting other things and coveting a different situation, coveting a different set of circumstances. We must always ask ourselves And push ourselves and draw ourselves in this direction that God would be our inheritance. Having more of him, having more of Christ, being more like Christ, trusting Christ more. He is my inheritance. The tragedy that we don't trust God himself no matter what Uh, happens in our own lives. And so God promises here, he says, if they don't destroy the devoted things, then his presence will not be with them. And that's the great tragedy for any church, for any human being, that God would not be with us. That's what distinguishes us. That's what distinguishes Israel from anyone else, is having the presence of God. And so this open confession, this frightening confession uh, of Achan's own covetousness and his theft and his lies uh, comes before the whole congregation. And then finally, there's this judgment. And you can see how the whole chapter is structured because it begins in verse 1 with the anger of the Lord burning And then toward the end in verse 26, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. That's the issue the whole time, falling under the wrath of God. And finally, the wrath of God being turned away from Israel. What is hard for us is 
his whole family. Now, there's the possibility that his family was involved in the theft. It's not stated, but many commentators would think, yeah, they're probably in on it. That doesn't explain the animals. They weren't in on it. But his own animals are being put to death. All of his possessions are being put to death. What is happening here is that his name and his future generations are all being judged at this point. What, happens, what is happening here too is that a man's personality was regarded as embracing all that he had and all of his family. And so his death alone would not be enough. The whole rest of him, that is his family and possessions, has to be destroyed as well. And so even as not only Rahab, but her whole family was rescued, even for the faith of Rahab, so in this instance, Achan and his whole family are destroyed for the sin of Achan. It does show us how seriously God views sin and how much we devalue sin. Ralph Davis says we can complain about this, the fact that God would do this. This is what he writes. We do better to fear. Fear because one man's sin turned away God's presence from a whole people Fear because a man's whole household was drawn into his punishment. We have such tame views of sin. Wrongly, we have no paranoia over this contagious power. We have no paranoia over this contagious power. And then as he refers to Jesus' words that... Better to be cast, better that you would cut off your right hand than to be cast into hell. He's not talking about this literally, but he's showing the critical importance of ridding yourself of sin. And David says, we don't share Jesus' alarm over sin. He talks about cutting off parts of your body as an illustration of ridding ourselves, always being on the fight against our own sin, always being with God in fighting against that which we see in our lives, in our our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. So we must maintain this healthy hatred and disgust over sin We, as a church, as a denomination, have careful rules even for discipline. This is a kind of, this certainly is a discipline. And, of course, we don't exercise discipline with this kind of uh, of political power, right? But the parallel in the church is excommunication. The parallel in the church is removing someone from the communion table. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is talking about a man who is having relations with his father's wife. Apparently a second wife, but he's having relations with her. 
and Paul speaks in this, this, this context of you're allowing this to happen. You're allowing this man to continue in your midst and you're not doing anything about it. Don't you understand that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? See, Paul sees the contagious power of sin. If you allow this, if you wink the eye, if you say it doesn't matter, then and the next thing won't matter, and the next thing won't matter, and, the next, and we just abandon God altogether. Discipline is hard, and often it's done in a brutal way instead of a compassionate way, in a loving way. By God's grace, I've seen it work in wonderful ways and different levels in the church. Our own Book of Church Order says the purposes of discipline are the rebuke of offenses, the removal of scandal, the vindication of the honor of Christ, the promotion of the purity and edification of the church, and the spiritual good of offenders themselves. The real desire is to draw them back. Now, in the case of Achan, that's the way it worked then. Our desire is to see people who've abandoned Christ and abandoned obedience to him to be brought back in to the church. That's our hope. But we've had repeated sad instances of ministers being unfaithful, morally, and having to be removed, not in this church, but in our own Presbytery in North Texas, and having to be removed from uh, being pastors, and in some cases ultimately removed from the church altogether because they would not repent. So we have our own version of this, all right? Jesus anticipated this in Matthew 18. He said, if your brother sins, go in private, talk to your brother. See, hopefully he'll repent and, and come back and quit this. But if not, then bring it to the leaders. And then if not, then bring it to the whole church. And if he continues, then put him out. And he says, treat him like a tax gatherer. In other words, or treat him like a Gentile. Treat him as though... As it stands, you are rejecting God, you're rejecting Christ, you're rejecting his people. If you continue in that final day when you're standing before God, you will not be with the congregation of God's people if you continue this way. And we're trying to give you a little preview and taste of it. Hopefully you will return. Hopefully you will come back. That's the seriousness of it. That's the seriousness of it. And Jesus says, what you say on earth, if we're following his will, we're submitting to him, we're trying to follow his word, then what we declare is, is not to be dismissed by others. So oh, they say whatever they want to over there. It doesn't matter to me. Well, it matters to Jesus. It matters to his, his people, his, his churches. We must share Jesus' alarm over sin. We must share the alarm that this passage shows us. The reality behind this devoted things is that God owns everything in the world. And this passage reminds us of how 
serious, how severe sin can be and how it must not uh, be allowed to continue uh, in the church. Now, obviously, we all sin in many ways every day, every week. But we're talking about uh, sin that is open and flagrant and disobedient in the sense of without repentance, without concern, then uh, it has to be dealt with in the best way possible. I want to close just to underscore the critical importance, as I spoke of it to, to start with, of trusting in Jesus Christ and the salvation that God has given us. We will be troubled forever, even as this valley was called the Trouble Valley, right? The Valley of Achor. Trouble will mark our lives if we do not entrust ourselves to this Jesus Christ who has been given for us by God the Father. We all are idolaters one kind or another. We all are covetous. Our gods are many and our false treasures are many. But while we were yet sinners, Paul says, and basically he could say, while we were yet idolaters, while we were yet covetous, Christ died for us. That's the good news. Coveter, idolater. He has died for us. He has died to set us free so that we would die to covetousness and idolatry and live in a new freedom of love and worship to Jesus Christ. And I want to underscore, even in that same book of Hebrews that talks about God being a a consuming fire, what he urges upon them again and again is continue to hold your confidence in the hope of Jesus Christ. Continue to have the assurance of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. The conviction, the trust in him. And as John says, as you trust in his perfect love, it casts out the fear of judgment. And you can have confidence in the day of judgment. And I want to leave you with that. That's the real focus of this, not to undermine your assurance, but to place your assurance in Christ and Christ alone, who delivers us from our own idolatry, delivers us from the wrath to come, and who is a sure confidence in that day of judgment. If we have Christ, we have peace, we have assurance, we have comfort forever and ever in him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that as we sang, you are a tender God. You are tender with us. You know we are frail. You know we are weak. You know our sinfulness. You know our failures. You know how we struggle even now as believers. And you are tender and patient with your people because you've given us the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him we have a righteousness in him we have an acceptance with you in him we are your children in him you are devoted to our good forever oh lord help us in the freedom of forgiveness all the more to war against our own sin all the more in the freedom of knowing that we are accepted in jesus christ 
to be honest and open about the things with which we struggle. Oh, Lord, help us as well to openly confess our sin, our pain, our struggles, our confusion to you, the misery and grief we have over even our own society breaking down, and enable us in the midst of it all to say, Lord, what will you do for your great name in this church, through our ministry, for your church worldwide? Oh, Lord, thank you that you will make your name great on the earth. And as it was prayed, as it's stated in the Old Testament even, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the seas. We thank you for that day that is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.